thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist is brought to you by The Ren Show. Joburg's biggest day out, 25 March to 3 April at the Johannesburg Expo Center, Nazareth. All right, it's uh, 6 after 10. Uh, this is your Friday stand-in. This is uh, Ndumiso Ngobo uh, standing in for Ridi Tlapi. And, and like as you heard the sting, it is now time for the naked scientist uh and uh, and of course uh uh chris uh, welcome to to the show good morning uh, yes you've got a you've got a fascinating story here about bacteria that can degrade plastic yep well every year it's a it's a harsh reality that millions of tons of plastic gets made used and then thrown away And the problem with plastics, um, and the vast majority of these plastics are a chemical called PET, which is polyterephthalate, they don't break down in the environment. There's no natural process for making them degrade. So they can hang around for thousands of years, and there are literally millions of tonnes of plastic building up in the oceans. They break down and make microplastic particles that get into sediments, they get into marine animals, and then ultimately they can collect a cargo of chemicals from the water, concentrate them in the food chain, and that means there's a risk for us too. So scientists are on the lookout for ways that we might be able to deal with this plastic problem, both the plastics of the future, but also the legacy of the plastics of yesterday. And there's a very interesting paper that's come out in the journal Science this week by researchers from Japan. This is Shoshuka Yoshida, who's a researcher at the Kyoto Institute of Science. And this group went to about 250 places where there were lots of plastics and they took samples they took samples of mud and sludge and sediment and they took them back to the laboratory and they've got a very simple test they have a thin film of PET and they add some of the bacteria that are living naturally in these samples they've collected onto the PET and they see if the bacteria can break it down and out of one of the 250 samples they isolated a bug it's called Idionella sacciensis and they found a, spe- a specific strain of this bacterium which appears to be endowed with the right chemistry to eat plastic. Now, it doesn't eat a huge amount of plastic. It eats only about 0.13 milligrams per centimetre squared per day of plastic, so it's quite slow at the moment. But this is amazing. These bacteria have naturally, through some, some mechanism, picked up the right sorts of genes to endow them with the chemistry to start breaking down plastic. And so the researchers are saying we could use these bacteria, they're harmless environmental microbes, we could use them to begin to solve some of our plastic problem if we can optimise and evolve this chemistry that they've got so they become even better at breaking down plastics. And perhaps you could, you could envisage in the future plastics made with some kind of uh, bacteria c- sort of built into the plastic so that after a certain period of time as the plastic ages the bacteria are reanimated they come to life and they start to eat the plastic and then if the plastic is dumped in the environment it'll just disappear harmlessly 
you know, you kind of have uh, preempted my, my, my next question. I do have a microbiology uh, background. So I, you know, I, was, I was going to actually say to you uh, that this is almost, um, you know, heresy because, you know, when I was studying microbiology, that's one of the things uh, that we, we, we always were, were taught, that they, they, there isn't anything naturally occurring uh, microbe that could possibly break down plastic. So obviously what has happened is with the introduction of plastic uh, by, you know, human use uh, over, over, over the years that we've been using plastic is some kind of mutation has happened uh, that has then uh, made, made, made this possible? Well, what they speculate is mm. that these microbes, because none of the other members of this family of bacteria have any genes like the ones that they're using to break down the plastic, they think that these bacteria, because they found themselves in an environment where there was a lot of plastic and they had a choice between eating something that was, say, sugar-based or in low concentration or trying to eat the plastic, and at the same time there were other bugs there that happened to, re to release some DNA which had the right sort of uh, ingredients for making enzymes, these little chemical catalysts that will enable them to eat plastic, these bacteria picked up those bits of DNA in the same way as you might just install a new computer program on your computer and give your computer new abilities, like installing a new app. Well, mm. that's basically what these bugs did. And, uh, and, and in the, this situation, they managed to grab the right combination of genes to endow them with the ability to eat plastic. All right, it's uh, 10 after 10. I'm in conversation with Chris, uh, Chris Smith, the naked scientist. We're talking matters scientific uh, on 011-883-0702. If you're in Gauteng, 021-446-0567. If you have a question uh, for, for Chris, now is your time to shine and, and, and ask uh, uh, those uh, particular uh, questions. Now, the question, obviously, uh, Chris, is that, you know, the, the bacteria that you, you, you're talking about with, with this ability to, uh, um, to, to, to degrade uh, PET. So this is, this is where this is in, uh, in, in, in Japan, right? Um, would, 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 you know, in, in terms of the scientific process, how long do you, you know, does one think it would take before this is obviously uh, industrially available? Well, they don't go into that in the paper because mm. that really wasn't what they were looking at. They were looking yeah. at actually how do the bacteria do this and it's, it's unusual that they found them at all. But the bottom line is that having found this example, you now go through a process of saying, well, how do we optimise this? How do we make this work better? Can we evolve this process? And you, you sort of speed up the process of evolution and begin to make these enzymes that the bacteria has to break down plastic better and better and better. And also ask, do we have to use just these bacteria? Could we put those enzymes into other bacteria that are even better at doing this because they grow faster or they have other abilities as well? And so now begins a very painstaking process of optimization of this process. 12 after 10, conversation with Chris Smith, uh, the Naked Scientist, on 011-883-0702-021-446-0567. Give him a call and uh, ask him, and we've already got uh, Marnie from uh, Rudaport. Marnie, uh, have you got a question for Chris? Good morning. Yes, please. I was just wondering, you know, apart from following a healthy lifestyle, if it is worth taking antioxidant tablets, in an attempt to um, prevent um, developing cancer. I've read somewhere that in one's body there's um, what they call free radicals that attack cells and might, you know, um, cause cancer. And antioxidant tablets are supposed to minimize those free radicals in the body. Um, I can be cynical and, and I can say that is what food is for. And we have evolved over millions of years to acquire these sorts of chemicals 
in the right sorts of contexts and in the right sorts of concentrations by eating the right sorts of foods. We didn't evolve to derive these chemicals in brute force massive amounts from a tablet. So I would suggest that whilst in some rare cases there are some people who, for certain reasons, have deficiencies of certain micronutrients, including antioxidants, and for them taking a vitamin pill can be life-saving, and those sorts of situations do exist, for the vast majority of us, eating a healthy diet which already contains all of these chemicals in the right trace amounts, in the right context, therefore making them get absorbed in the body in the right way and in the most bioavailable way, that's the most sensible approach. Now, there is evidence in some cases that using vitamin pills and antioxidants might in fact have the reverse effect and not l lengthen your life but shorten your life. Uh, there were initially observations a number of years ago where people who were at risk of getting lung cancer because they smoked heavily were given vitamin A. Those people given the vitamin A, which is an antioxidant, had a higher rate of cancer compared with people who got a placebo pill. We don't know why. There was also a big meta-analysis by a gentleman from the University of Copenhagen. His name is Goran Bielikovic, and he published a Cochrane Collaboration review a number of years ago, and then another one a couple of years after that, where they looked at people taking antioxidant vitamins and looked at disease outcomes, and there is evidence that people who take antioxidants, including vitamin A, vitamin C, and vitamin E, they may actually have a higher mortality rate compared with people who are not using these substances. And there's also evidence, which we put out on our programs in the last six months or so, that taking antioxidant vitamins might in fact encourage and facilitate the process of cancer spread known as metastasis. So actually, um, they may not be such a good idea after all. So just eating the right foods, which means at the moment, as far as we know, five portions of fruit and vegetables every day, minimise your meat intake to what amounts to a healthy and happy intake of meat, um, and take exercise and don't drink too much and don't smoke. Those are the best ways to stay healthy. You know, uh, like uh, my grandmother always said, sometimes all it is is uh, common sense. All right, we've, uh, we've got uh, Benjamin. I was calling us from Linksfield. You've got a question for Chris? Hi, guys. Yes, my question for Chris is, Chris, can you explain the science behind hypnosis? Well, I can certainly try. Um, people have subjected this to very rigorous tests and Despite what the stage performers would have you believe, which is, and they want you to believe this because they make their money out of making you convinced that they're doing something, actually what's going on in the brain of, of a person who is being hypnotised is that they are being made to feel very relaxed and they are uh, avoiding distractions from other sources around the room and they are therefore being made to think about things in a clear, focused way. They are not being made to do things against their will. And despite what stage performers would have you believe, you will not be able to persuade people to do the daft things that they do on stage. Those people are doing that because they, they are doing it out of fear they're going to be humiliated if they don't play along. Um, I've taken part in stage hypnosis situations and, and watched all my friends uh, make utter idiots of themselves and then admit afterwards to me privately that actually they were making it up as they went along because it gave them an excuse in front of the audience to play the fool when everyone thought they were doing it because they were hypnotised. So there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, it's anything other than a state of relaxation and, and mental focus. All right, uh, that's that's answer 17 after 10, uh, talking to the naked scientist, Chris. Uh, we've got Natalie from Pretoria. Hi, good morning. Uh, my question is a simple one. Why is it that girls can whistle like boys? Is there any physiological reason to it? 
Well, um, I put it to you that girls are very good at whistling, and uh, I got my own evidence for this because Victoria, who's uh, one of my colleagues who came out to South Africa with me last year to do the RAND show, well, the year before we were both in uh, Australia, in Perth, doing some science shows together, and we went to an Australian rules football match, my first one to see a proper live Aussie rules football match, and uh, myself and, and the lady I was there with, suddenly we were deafened by this noise originating from Victoria, who had delivered quite possibly a 10 on the Richter scale loudest whistle I have ever heard in my entire life. So I, I, maybe it's just that, that boys are show-offs and they're more likely to try and make a statement. And, uh, and girls have no anatomical or physiological reason why they can't whistle every bit as loudly. They just choose to be sensible about it and they don't too often. All right, thank you, Natalie. Let me ask you, Chris, you know, uh, quickly, uh, stuttering. Okay, uh, I have in my life never met a woman who stutters, uh, yet I know many men uh, who, who stutter, and I tried to look this up on the internet. I couldn't find a definitive answer. Is it, is it, is it uh, uh, sex-based? Sex stuttering. To be honest, I don't know if there is a sex bias between men and women stuttering. Mm. I'd have to look that up. I don't know. I've never been asked that question. Yeah. Um, but what I will say is I, I'm definitely aware of both women and men who develop stutters. And, and I know men and women who both have the problem. So I don't think it's exclusive to one sex at all. Mm. Whether it has a bias in one direction for one sex, I don't know. All right. 19 after 10. Let's take a quick ad break. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 22 after 10. Uh, this is uh, the Naked Scientist feature. And we are taking your call 011 083 If you've ever thought of something that you just could not explain, one of those people is Dale from Midrand. Dale, welcome to 702 Cape Talk. Hi. Yeah, please ask your question. Hi, Chris. Uh, I was wondering earlier, you mentioned that. Taking additional uh, vitamins may accelerate the spread of dangerous diseases like cancer, etc. Um, would exercise, vigorous exercise, have a similar effect? Well, as far as we know, exercise seems to be health beneficial. People who take regular exercise appear to have low rates of morbidity and mortality compared with people who do not exercise. This could be because people who don't take exercise uh, eat a worse diet and um, also look after themselves less well otherwise so we're not sure if it's cause or effect or it may be that exercise in some way benefits your body through the release of other factors that reduce your risk of cancer it may be that most of the mortality um, which is offset by exercise is cardiovascular disease because one in three people will die of that and therefore taking exercise being good for that you're going to see a big drop in mortality so at the moment we don't know but certainly uh, there are biochemical reasons why exercise is good for you in a range of different ways and also why eating a healthy diet is good for you in a range of different ways so all these things summed together probably keep you healthier for longer okay but if you were diagnosed for example with say uh, aggressive disease like cancer and you exercised, uh, would, would the stimulation not spread the rate of, of the disease, you know, if your cells are um, being stimulated? Well, I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't know if anyone has looked. I'd have to go and see if anyone's done a study looking at people who take regular exercise after they've been given a diagnosis of cancer. I think the evidence would be that actually... Keeping active is very good whatever is going on in your life, whether you're healthy or unhealthy, 
if you maintain activity, this seems to have a positive health effect regardless. I don't think there's any reason to suspect that suddenly becoming very active or more active than normal would reduce your risk of benefiting from cancer treatment or uh, you're making your cancer progress i think that you're probably going to derive some benefit but if you go over the top and you stress the system and you start taking very vigorous uh, excessive exercise then this is going to be bad for you regardless of whether you've got cancer or not so that's that's going to be unhealthy um full stop Next, we go to Mark in Centurion, who's got a question that I also uh, am very keen to, to know the answer. Mark, go for it. Yes, hi, guys. Uh, look, I, I exercise quite rigorously. In fact, I cycle a lot. Um, I train every morning for about an hour, and I sweat like a pig and so on. Um, when I come back from a ride and uh, uh, exercise hard, um, uh, I first, first weigh myself just to see uh, whatever it is uh, and fluids that I might have lost. I then have a bit of a recovery drink, which is about a beer glass uh, uh, size. It's about 500 pills with uh, whatever that I take for recovery. And if I weigh myself straight again, straight afterwards again, theoretically, I should be 500 grams heavier because now I've, I've ingested that 500 mils of fluid. The problem is that my scale, which goes right down in 50 gram steps, electronic scale, uh, shows me exactly the same weight. I, I don't understand this. However, if I have a braai or a barbecue and I have a couple of beers in the afternoon and I weigh myself before and after, uh, normally I see about five or 600 grams difference there. So why is it that straight after exercise, my weight doesn't change when I drink? However, when I'm relaxed and I have a couple of beers and so on, uh, my weight does go up. Uh, I, I can't actually understand what the relationship might be. Did you say that you uh, weigh yourself before and after you take the rehydration drink following the exercise or yeah. you do the exercise, weigh yourself, sorry, do the exercise, have the drink and then weigh yourself? No, I, let's say I come back from a ride or do the exercise, I immediately weigh myself because obviously you sweat a lot and mm. you know what, your, what your weight is now having sweated up, let's say, a litre or two of fluids. Uh, but then I do my stretching and I sit down and relax and I have my recovery drink. Normally a 500 ml beer glass. If I, mm. As soon as I finish it and I weigh myself again, I still the same weight. That's oh, totally perplexing. <laughs> Well, it's perplexing me as well because one would anticipate that you will have sweated a lot because you can sweat up to five litres an hour if you're in a very hot, very demanding environment. And one would think that if you're having an, an, an energising bike ride, then you should be sweating quite considerably. I mean, obviously, some of that sweat's going to go into your clothing, so you won't generally have lost the liquid, but then that should be reflected in what your scales are showing you. I would, uh, I would be sceptical of your scales because... It sounds like they might be a little bit off. I don't know how accurate they are, but uh, there, there might be some intrinsic noise in the scales and therefore mm, perhaps perhaps the tiny, subtle changes in total body fluids are not being reflected in what your scales are telling you because there's, they're, not, they're not very accurate. All right, 27 after 10, still taking your calls uh, for The Naked Scientist. And next up, we've got John uh, from the West Rand. Hi. Hi, Chris. Um... Chris, what I'd like to ask you, we know, for instance, that in a lightning storm, in a th- uh, thunderstorm, that being in a car is possibly the safest place to be because of the Faraday effect. But now what is happening with more and more cars being made out of plastic? Are we now more exposed traveling in a car um, 
that is not shielded by metal around you. Could you give me some idea on that? Well, it's certainly true that people who are in a metal car are in a metal box, effectively, and as Michael Faraday showed, after whom the Faraday effect is known, that there's no net electric field inside that box, inside the, the metal cage, and therefore you are not at risk if uh, high voltages are applied to you because there are all these different routes that it can take around you, but there's no net... Uh, effect across you so there's no current flowing through you therefore you're not harmed now plastics are generally regarded as insulators and therefore uh, you would not derive necessarily the same benefit through being inside a plastic box that said most of these plastics are carbon fiber and carbon fibers can conduct electricity so if there was a big lightning bolt that was sufficient to melt the uh, hit the outside of the car it would probably melt the veneer or the lacquer and that would probably lead to some conduction through the carbon fibers i would say don't know for sure that would be my speculation also there's going to be water on the outside of the car which at the very high voltages of a lightning strike which is millions of volts that's sufficient to ionize or split the water particles up into ions which will conduct electricity so i think probably you'd still be okay because you're you're still inside the plastic cocoon which is itself an insulator so there's still going to be a very difficult for there to be any electric field across you personally so i think you'd probably be okay actually all right, uh, Chris, uh, on that illuminating uh, tip, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And, uh, yeah, of course, uh, look forward uh, to, to listening to you next week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And it's only a week and a half till I shall be in Joburg. And then we're going to do some action uh, live from 702 on uh, the Thursday before the RAND show. So I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody. I hope everyone's going to come along and say hello. All right, Chris, uh, Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Take care. There, Bye-bye. cheers. Um, Big up your Easter holiday and make the RAND show your destination of choice from the 25th of March to the 3rd of April at the Johannesburg Expo Center, NASRAC. Explore 5,000 square meters of science and tech edutainment for the whole family, gardening trends, and the man cave. Go big with the SANDF Big Bang, tons of shopping, the Animal Kingdom, and the Fun Fair. There will also be competitions and challenges, including Miss RAND show, Extreme Bodies, South Africa's Strongest Man, and much more. The Ren Show, Johannesburg's biggest day out. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.